As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. This is the Athletic Football Show. Welcome to the Athletic Football Show. Today is Thursday, February 10th. I'm Robert Mays coming to you guys from Radio Row in Los Angeles at the Super Bowl. Really fun show for you guys today. I wanted to have on two of our team writers that cover the Rams and the Bengals. You know, one of the benefits of working at the Athletic, and just one of the reasons that the Athletic is great, is that we have these writers who have a deep understanding of everything about these teams, the way they operate, how they got here, why they operate the way that they do. And when you get to this moment with these teams kind of on the brink of a championship, I think those considerations and those conversations are vital. So I wanted to have Paul Diener Jr., who covers the Bengals for us, and Jordan Roderick, who covers the Rams for us, on to just discuss how these teams got here, why they got here, every aspect of where these franchises are. So very, just great conversations with both of them. Let's get to it. Paul, how you doing? What's up, Robert? It's good to be here, man. It's great to have you here. The Bengals are playing in the Super Bowl, so you're here. So we've reached the point where I said I was going to be comfortable saying that sentence. (laughs) I said, look, just get me to Wednesday of actual Super Bowl week, and I'll be comfortable saying the Cincinnati Bengals are playing in the Super Bowl. I'm not there yet. It's still not quite real that we're talking about this team playing in the Super Bowl, but I think I can get there by Friday. We had... I've you've been obviously been on the show several times this year, and one of the reasons that we've been on each other's shows and we've had so many conversations over the last twelve months or so is that the Bengals have been fascinating in a broader sense. Yeah. You know, you wrote today in the, in the piece that you did about their scouting staff, which we'll dig into here in a second, just about how many debates have gone on <laughs> both within the Bengals building, but then just about the Bengals. Period. So you and I, you know, going back to April, May, had some conceptual conversations about the Bengals. I remember sitting in the press box at Paul Brown Stadium, and you and I talked about 
just what their philosophy was and how they built this thing and what like the best version of this team was. You came on early in the season when it seemed like they were kind of outperforming expectations. At no point during any of those conversations did I think you and I would be sitting here no. right now, even if early in the season there was some building optimism about what this team could end up being. No, you're right. And I think there is a moment um, in week seven in Baltimore. And I, I'm, you know, the, the world of everything being captured on the sideline and mic'd up is so great because we caught the moment that Joe Burrow realized he could be here. Yeah. It was there on the sideline in Baltimore. And he's talking to T. Higgins, but there's a circle of people. He's talking to no one in particular. He just says it out loud. He says, if we can win this division, we can win it all. We can win the whole thing. And he walks off with that look we've all seen now. Yeah. And right then, it has never left me since the moment he said it that day. I wrote about it the next day. I was like, Joe Burrow just realized he can, he can do it with this group. And, and they won that day 41-17. to They were 5-2. and two, And they've had fits and starts since then that have really been kind of a really interesting path. But that was when you – everything before that, that seemed like a pipe dream. And Burrow admitted it just a couple weeks ago. He said, look, before the season started, I would have said, man, it, it would be crazy that we – there's no way we're going to make it to the Super Bowl with this group. He wanted, <laughs> he wanted to, like, get a winning record, get into the playoffs. They, were, maybe. they picked the top five the last two seasons. Yes, absolutely. But it's, so, I mean, he, you know, he, he – that never thought – he even he the most optimistic I can do anything was like we can get in the playoffs and maybe win a game and end that drought thing that'd be great yet here they are and but since that moment I don't think they've ever they have felt that this is a pipe dream at that point but it did take that prove that proving ground early in the season uh, to show that they that maybe they could do this so we're going to talk today which I should have done at the beginning of this about how the Rams and the Bengals got here, what their paths were to this point. And you and Jordan Rodriguez just have such an intimate knowledge of everything about these franchises, and I wanted to dig into that with you. So let's start with Joe Burrow. Because if you're looking at the Bengals' just journey to this moment and what other teams can take from it and how you can st- – because that's always what happens, right? How do these teams got here? How, what can we learn from it? In the Bengals' situation, I think there's some things we can learn. I think there's some things that it's just looking into Joe Burrow. Getting to that point when you lose, what, two games? Or win two games the year before, you get the number one pick in a year with a transformative type of quarterback. So just walk me through, in your opinion, as someone who's covered this team for a long time, what is different now about the Bengals because Joe Burrow is there? Belief. I mean, there was no belief forever. I mean, there was the belief that existed in the building, uh, in the organization, in in the city, was one of waiting for the other shoe to drop. What's going to go wrong now? How is this going to fail? The Bengals are just this entity that's they're not great corporate citizens. They're cheap and whatever. It's just a matter of time till they lose and break our hearts and whatever. Then when Burrow came, it wasn't that. It wasn't is this the time that my heart breaks? It's no, this is the time that Joe Burrow comes out of the tunnel. And, and that belief has captured the team. It has captured the city. And, he, and it's, it's not like he came in and gave a speech. It's not like, you know, I think this is, enough has been said and written and people have knowledge of now how he sort of does this. It's insane, the parallels. I was just on our, our Hold That podcast, the LSU podcast, uh, with, with Brody Miller yesterday. The parallels between how he did it yep. at LSU and in capturing the team, the program, the state, and how he has done it in Cincinnati just with this very down-to-earth, hard work, but 
insane confidence in himself that everybody reaches onto, toughness that every person that's associated with football loves and admires and wants to follow. He's not a rah-rah guy. He's not, you know, but he has an innate, incredible, instinctual sense of people what people need, what people want to hear, how to be a leader. He grew up the son of a coach. He, he understands that. And he understands that how a quarterback can instill that and has done it now in two different places using the same method. And then he becomes this quirky fashion guy with the glasses and people love how unique he is. And He's the most confident person I've ever seen in my entire life. It's, un- it, it, it's unbelievable. And I was talking to Brian Callahan last week and for a story I'm hopefully going to write later this week. And we were discussing just, okay, how does it manifest when you have this sort of presence? Like we can talk about it in these nebulous terms, but concretely, what do you see? And he was talking about it as earned confidence. Like Joe has earned confidence because of the work that he puts in. And we were talking about the parallels to the Joe Burrow coming into Cincinnati situation and when he was in Denver and Peyton Manning got there, right? So obviously very different points in their career. Joe Burrow's a rookie. Peyton Manning is already one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time by the time he gets to Denver. So when Manning gets to Denver... Everything changes because everyone in the organization looks at the quarterback always and says, okay, where can the quarterback take us? With Peyton, it's instantaneous. From the moment he is there, everyone in the organization looks to him as this kind of beacon. With Joe, it obviously, you have to show it. You have to prove to people that you are that guy. But it didn't take long for him to prove to people that he was that guy. So then everybody in the organization, your understanding of what is possible changes. And when your understanding of what is possible changes, what you expect of yourself every day, how you come to work, it just, it gets into the fabric of who you are. And this is how it works with all quarterbacks. But I think with this franchise, who's been looking for one, Andy Dalton was what he was, right? Like there, I think that in my opinion, contrasting the previous version of this team that could have won a Super Bowl, like that 2015 roster, And you look at how well-built it was and how complete it was. Andy Dalton was merely a cog in that machine. When you removed him and it all kind of fell apart that season, Joe Burrow is not a cog in the machine. He is the engine that drives this entire thing. And that distinction, I think, you can feel how different that is. Yeah. Because nothing creates true belief like the quarterback. Yes. Because he is the only one that can really change everything on the field. You can have all the A.J. Greens and Mosa News and Marvin Joneses and Tyler Eiferts and Andrew Whitworths. I could go on and on on that team. Team was they, awesome. They were he, so good. They were so good. <laughs> you can have all those guys you want. If you don't have the quarterback to really drive you all the way, it's really, really, really hard to do. And when you have that, you're right. It's just, And I think this team... And this organization did a really good job of building leadership to to complement Joe. I mean, to to really help build that up of guys that feed off of that as well, a young core, and and clearing out. You know, Burrow came in, and because like we say he has such a good sense of dy- human dynamics, he was reticent to be the leader. You had AJ Green here, and here's Geno Atkins, and guys that have been here yeah. for ten years, ten years, and and, and he knows I'm not going to come in here and tell these guys what to do. They knew for him and all the guys they have now since added over these two years that they thought were really good leaders from winning programs and winning other winning teams in the NFL to truly take over and change the culture. They had to clear the decks. And that was really the biggest part of this offseason that happened that people don't talk about. They have a lot of respect for those players. They love those players, but they knew this new generation could never take over if Giovanni Bernard and these guys were really still there because everyone would say, okay, it's your locker room. Now, 
It's Joe Burrow's locker room. It's Von Bell's locker room. It's Jesse Bates's locker room because they feel like they have ownership of it. And that has really been what's taken off this culture that, no joke, I have never seen anything like it. Everybody likes everybody. Everybody hangs out together. There's this sense of happiness coming to work every day that you just don't see in a world where everyone's playing for millions of dollars. Yeah. And, and it's totally unique, and it has been a huge part of the direction they're going. That's part quarterback. That's also part everybody else in the culture that Zach Taylor set all working together. So I want to go back to what you said a little bit earlier about the Bengals are cheap, right? Because for a long, long time, you'd have conversations with other people in the league. I remember I was in Minnesota the day that A.J. Green got hurt on that piece of shit college field that they were playing that training camp practice on. Welcome stadium in Dayton. Yes, 14-year-old turf. Yeah, yes. so <laughs> we, I was having a conversation with a coach in Minnesota, and we were talking about what the Bengals would do that year because it's like, all right, well, this is over. right? Like This version of it, whatever it was with A.J. Green and Andy Dalton is over. Do they try to tr- trade Andy Dalton? What do they do? And th- he stopped me, and he was like, you're ascribing – normal thinking to the Bengals. <laughs> and he wasn't even being mean. No, it's not. He wasn't even being they mean. They operate differently. He was like, it is just a different, they do things differently there. And that's how it always was. And, and I want to talk about kind of the nuances of that because it's not a negative or positive value kind of proposition that you're talking about. It's just a different way of doing it. They were successful for a while. They went to the playoffs consistently. They won a lot of games under Marvin Lewis. I want to talk about how things have shifted in terms of the way they do business mm-hmm. over the last three years. When they opened the checkbook in the spring of 2020 mm-hmm. and they signed DJ Reader to that deal and they signed Trey Waynes to that deal, it was shocking because for years, the free agent classes were, let's re-sign Bobby Hart. Like, that was what the free agent classes <laughs> Don't do like. that to Bengals fans, But it's Robert. true. But that's what it was. For years, that's <laughs> yes. what it was. Yes. So I want to talk about why, how that change happened. Why do you think that change in philosophy and change in methodology happened and who do you think is responsible for it and when did it start? I think it started when Zach Taylor showed up. Okay. I mean, I, I think there was a sense of when they, when they ended the, the Marvin Lewis era, you know, there's so much of what we're talking about. Cheapness is the word that gets used. There's a, a sense of old school family loyalty that exists with Mike Brown and the organization. They just have a sense of taking care of the people that they've brought in and they didn't, they don't, they don't like the cutthroat, nasty, impersonal, faceless nature of the current NFL business structure. They didn't they never they still don't like that. I think when Zach Taylor came in and essentially convinced them and, and not that Duke needed it, but I think Duke Tobin maybe came a little bit more to the forefront of willing to go that route was because he's a he, you got to operate this is in way. his fabric, right? And he's been is, here for 20 years. Duke Tobin had never sat in front of us until the day they had a press conference announcing Zach Taylor. They wanted Duke next to Mike Brown on the podium. This was his guy. This was his hire. This is the first time we're putting Duke Tobin out here as no longer, we're not going to say the title, but you can take de facto off GM. It should have been done 10 years ago, but that's fine. This is us saying, here he is at the press conference between Mike and Zach. This is him, right? And 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 we're turning it over. And and what Zach Taylor and that staff brought in was, look, guys, you're not going to win in this league if you don't get into free agency. You, draft, develop, and retain is the ultimate model. Everybody knows that. But where we're at, 
where this if you're going to gut this they were the thing, worst where, drafting team in the league for five years for five years before <laughs> and but I would say the best drafting team in the league the five years prior to that yes oh nine to thirteen was one of the greatest runs you'll ever see hundred percent fourteen to eighteen was one of the worst it was incredible but, but that, that happens right in the it, NFL it cycles. It cycles. every team is going to have fallow periods when it comes to drafting the yeah. Seahawks were the greatest drafting team of all time they built the defining team of a decade of football because of like three drafts from 2010 through 2012 and then inevitably because no one is good at this you're going to have those little dips and the Bengals had to supplement that with outside players but they were never willing to do that before and I think that if you look at the way they've built this defense if they don't change the way that they think if they don't say we're going to be able to go out we're going we're willing to go outside the building to add talent they're not here because the defense is built entirely through free agency outside of two guys. Yeah. And Logan Wilson, I guess, is a third. I mean, Jermaine Pratt. So like maybe four guys. You have four homegrown guys, and the rest are free agents. It's insane. Yeah, well, and, and I think it was, I think there was always maybe a willingness to do it if they had to, but they never felt like they had to. They always, I always said they always overvalued their own players. I don't, they ever knew, I don't think they ever really properly understood the market of their own guys because it's like they were like their kids. They loved them more yeah. than anybody else could. And it resulted in things like Bobby Hartson that you mentioned in Of the World. There were a lot of those. It, and I think it takes somebody else coming in from the outside. It's a great point. Not valuing these guys the same way and understanding what else you can get to come in and reset it. The thing for me going forward will be, and not to spin it forward past Super Bowl, but is like, will they now go back to now these are our guys? And how long will they be trying to recreate 2021 over and over again the same way they spent 16, 17, and 18 trying to recreate 15? Yeah. And and you at a certain point, you have to move on and, and, and see the proper value. I don't know if how much they Will I don't think we'll see two year spending sprees in free agency like we just saw from them again. You don't want them. No, you don't want to they don't do need that. Them, and they don't need them. And, and so I don't, you know, I don't think we'll see that. That said, they the willingness to go out there and do it and do it with the success rate that you just don't see in free agency is truly a remar- remarkable thing. Everything had to fall almost perfectly into place for them to be in this spot, and and it has. I feel it. So looking at just the overall structure of the organization, this is just knowledge you have that very few people do. My understanding is that some of the family members, Katie Blackburn, so I'm just trying to think of the names. Some of the the family members associated with the Brown family, some of the younger ones have gotten more say and have become more prominent in the way the organization runs. Do you think that's influenced kind of whatever modern feel the Bengals have started to develop, just the way that the voices are in that building? More on the uh, marketing side. Okay. So, like, I think operationally, I mean, Duke, M- Mike Brown sort of pushed the daily day to day operations to the side a decade ago. Yeah. I mean, he, it, this has been Duke and Katie and Troy Blackburn. Uh, Katie, his his daughter, then Paul Brown as well as the son, have been kind of running the show for a long time on the football side. What is interesting has happened because uh, only can happen in the Bengals is Elizabeth Blackburn. Katie's daughter, who is in her late 20s, that's, that's what I'm thinking. has come in and had as director of strategy and engagement and said, Grandpa, look, your franchise, <laughs> no one, it's, you need to figure it out. You need a ring of honor. You need to have social media. Your game day needs to be a show. This is entertainment. Mike Brown is Paul Brown. Football is yeah, all that yeah, yeah. matters, and the stadium seats will be green, and because of the color of the field, and we're going to play the game, and everyone's going to think that that's the entertainment, and they're going to leave after that, and that's what football is. No, and here's the thing: Mike Brown said this before the season started. He said, 
He said, you know, Elizabeth came in and got all these things and everybody else in the building is scared of me except for her. <laughs> she is probably the only person on earth that could get Mike to finally come around on all of these things because you can't say no to your granddaughter. Yeah, yeah. And that w- and it's so people said, well, she's so young. That's a job that people work their whole careers and never get to. How can this 20-some-year-old person come in and, and when actuality, she's the only person on earth that could do that job and have had the success they have to re-engage, reconnect with a fan base that didn't just have dislike them was apathetic towards them at this point whatever Bengals and now it's the exact opposite they've never been more connected the city's never been more alive in support of the Bengals and so much of it is the team is Burrow but is also aligning everything else so when the moment comes they're properly prepared to be really engaged and it's just fun. it's funny because you need that outside perspective right even though she's in the family it is a new perspective and it's the same you forget how long Marvin was there you just, you just forget how long he was there. And you just saying, like, Zach getting there and being someone who came from somewhere else, had a different viewpoint, said, maybe we should try this, some of this stuff. You can feel how different that is. So you wrote yesterday about the scouting staff there, which is obviously, again, an outlier. The way that they do business is different. <laughs> That's right? an understatement. So yeah. <laughs> you, t- you look at the Rams. I'm staring at Jordan Rodriguez right here. You look at the Rams and what they do. They have 26 people on their in their personnel and, department. And that's actually probably taking it easy. That doesn't even go into their analyst side that they have listed like another 30. And it, the teams at the top make sense, right? So you have <laughs> the Ravens. You have the Browns. You have, I think, probably the Eagles are up there. The Rams are up there. That all makes sense. The Bengals have six. Yes. Six members of their personnel department. How do you think some of the tweaks they've made there, how do you think that that operation has fueled just the way they've built this team? Like, what do you think the strengths of that are? Because they're going to tell you that they think it is actually an advantage. They believe it is a feature, not a malfunction. And, and, and they believe there is a synergy that comes from understanding the building, understanding, because the coaches, the thing is, it's not that they have six. It's that the coaches are the other 15. Yeah. Okay. And so they want the coaches to feel like they have ownership over who they know who they can coach. They know what Zach Taylor wants. They know the type of guys that fit in what they're missing. And they want the coaches to feel part of the personnel staff. They want the personnel staff to feel part of the coaches. The personnel staff will often go on the headsets during games and be on the coach headsets. One, to be an extra hand if anybody were to need anything. But two, just to have a pulse for what they're talking about, what they're in the moment voicing frustration about, to have a sense of that. Duke does that. Mike Potts, the college director of scouting, does that. because it's all they want it all to be together they're around ownership all the time they're all in the building they all are there together working on that and they feel like it creates a sense of unanimous voice of everybody truly understanding what you're looking for in players and so unlike you know one example that was made to me was look other guys they live on a different part of the country they circle their area it's all wild year. that there are scouts that just live in their own area and they'll come in for yeah. the draft or for meetings or zoom or whatever you know the the constant conversations that are had in the locker room with players uh in in with ownership in with coaches those things they feel like really help build a true sense of community amongst everybody pushing in the same direction of what they need is that right no, I, it, the Rams and Bengals being here proves there is no right way. Yeah, that you can do it with everybody. They view it as their way, and they don't need more. The thing that have been told to me at the very beginning is we don't need more voices. We just need the right voices. And Duke Tobin, when he, I have the right voices, I know it. 
two voices are not worse than six if the six are all over the place and the two are together in unison and the right choice, and that's kind of how they view it. I'll play devil's advocate. They were terrible at building this team for the last five years. They've gotten much better at it, and the reason this all works is the Burrow side of this, getting Jamar Chase with the fifth overall pick, and the way they've built the defense. And I think that is, as I step back and I think about this, and I think what aspects of this are replicable, what are things that you can take away? The thing I keep coming back to is looking at the types of players they went after in free agency on defense, where the price ranges are in those guys. There is a Chidobia Wuzier and a Von Bell available in every single free agent class. You can find those guys. You have to pay a premium for a DJ Reader when you chase a guy like that or a Trey Hendrickson. But there are aspects of this where the way they've built this thing, the personalities, how smart those guys are, the way that's all come together, to me, that's the most fascinating part of what this team is because it doesn't require getting the number one overall pick in a year where the greatest college quarterback of the last 15 years comes out. You know, it's the interesting conversation that I've seen, whether in the comments or responses to the scouting stories. Oh yeah. How about this? Uh, You luck into Joe Burrow because you stink so much. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Obviously like there is, this doesn't, isn't happening. We're not talking about these slick moves. If they went seven and 10 with some (laughs) other quarterback, but it's so yes, there is a, total luck element to building that, but you have to get out of the way. You have to understand how to let Joe Burrow do his thing, what leadership looks like, and what he needs to complement him. Let's not act like it was like, oh yeah, draft Burrow, draft Chase. Like We didn't spend six months talking about Chase versus Sewell and how to build this thing, and the decisions are, every spot is its own decision, its own right. So, yes, you get Burrow. A lot of people have gotten good quarterbacks. How many times have has it come across like this sometimes but we haven't seen anything like this and the defense took them here like let's just yes. be honest like the defense is the reason they're here because the way the defense this, played over the, the last step weeks. the step this team was supposed to take this year of making the playoffs and maybe winning a game is is uh, is at, augmented by the defense they're here because the defense took them that extra two rounds because they weren't good enough offensively yet because of their line to get to the next step 100%. to carry them the defense carried them the rest of the way Something I like to ask somebody who covers the team day to day is just who are we not talking about enough? Like who are the unsung heroes in your opinion of this Bengals season that are the at its core a couple of the reasons that they're here but aren't on my mind? Sam Hubbard. That's uh, a really good one. Look, they people don't. I mean, when they drafted Burrow, um, the year they were going to draft Burrow, Hubbard and Burrow are great friends since back in their Ohio State games so together. Uh, Hubbard goes to Miami, Super Bowls in Miami that year. Burrow's doing the rounds as the Heisman guy. They hung out all week. They went like fishing together and hung out together and started to build the literal core. There's a reason that the two of them went out for the coin toss in Kansas City. The literal core of the next generation started, and Hubbard was a big part of they've they, They've kind of viewed the two of those guys as like defense, offensive, really quiet, leadership, hardworking, does everything the right way every day, relentless in practice, relentless in meetings. We want both sides of the ball to be based around that, to look like that. We want guys that play like that and think like that. Those two, you know, Hubbard is the other side of it. He doesn't get a lot of shine because he's not he really a pass doesn't. rusher. He, he's a, he picks up scraps that is created. He does weird roles. Like he's yeah. a spy in certain situations. Yeah. Like it just, they, they, in the, the Oakland game, they had him lined up off the ball. I mean, the sack he had, he was lined up as an off-ball linebacker. It's just, he plays this kind of, I don't know, the, there are not a lot of 
there's not a lot of rigidity to the role that he plays. He does no. a lot of different things for them. Yeah, well, and, and he's a, like a run stopper, yeah. like a great run stopper. And so there's a selflessness to like he's he's not kind of this when you think of great edges, but he is really the the personality that he plays with and the tenacity and kind of energy that he plays with feeds everyone. And that's kind of what's defined that defense, right? Flying after the ball, always chasing a pass when it gets deflected and able to be there to get the pick. It's been a big part of what they do as a whole. So, I mean, I think he's probably one that I would point to. What aspect of this, when it comes to the city, the fan base, watching how Cincinnati has reacted to this team will stick with you the longest? <sighs> I, I don't think to, – to me, this um, – as much as this season, ha, for on a national perspective, has been about Burrow and, has, and, and everything he is and has become and, and the fun Cinderella story of the Bengals, for those inside the city, I grew up there. I understand the dynamics of the team in the city probably as well as anybody This season will always be about this city coming alive. It will always be about this – thing that has been created during this run because it will never be like this again yeah you know you only get one first you only get one first time breaking through with the new group and the fun new guy and they've been this it's not just the Bengals. the reds last advanced in the postseason in 1995 no but there is a generation of cincinnati sports fans that have never experienced success in the postseason ever yeah and this year has been so special for that group of people who are 30, right, who are just now learning what it's like when the Cincinnati, it's a great sports town, but it's just been so beaten down to now suddenly the fabric of it, of how they define themselves is changed because they believe that Joe Burrow is going to come out of the tunnel now. And it just doesn't feel like you're waiting for Carson Palmer's injury or Kenyon Martin's leg or Andy Dalton's thumb or Johnny Cueto's oblique or any millions of things that have killed great runs in the past. Are, it's like they're washed away and you're starting over and you now understand that being a sports fan is fun. Yeah. It's not something that you beat yourself up about and complain about ownership every week. It's fun. It can create unbelievable moments and connections between fans, between fathers and sons and daughters and and friends and neighbors. And the videos that have come out of all of these special events have been like just to me, that's been the story. That has been the story of what's happened inside of the city of Cincinnati, whether they win Sunday or not. I mean, no one can ever take that away. They may come back. It'll never feel like this again. It'll never be as special as this has been for the city, and that's what I'll take away. I, I totally understand that. This is, these are the moments and these are the reasons that being a sports fan is worth it. Yep. It's for, it, it's for these sorts of payoffs. It's for these sorts of connections. It's to be able to enjoy it. We we said it earlier this year. It's like this is why you endure all that shit. <laughs> this is why you go through it. Is for this. Yeah. It it'd be great to win. Uh, it'd be so special if they won for all of those people. But even to get to this point is pretty remarkable. Paul, it's so great to chat with you. It always is. Sincerely yep. appreciate the time, and uh, we'll see you the rest of the week here. Looking forward to it, Robert. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone. Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the, did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. For their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify magic. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash maze, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash maze now to grow your business, no matter which stage you're in. Shopify.com slash maze. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. Don't just ride the index, seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. All right, it's time now to welcome our Rams writer at The Athletic, Jordan Roderick. Jordan, it's so good to see you. It's so good to be doing this like this. I know, we're in person. I know. This is so great. I it, know. I was kind of like, I'm trying to compose myself a little bit and not, get too, <laughs> not be too much right now. Listen, you know? I, it's easy to get overexcited when you're doing it like this, but I'm so glad that we get to kind of feed off the adrenaline being around each other and again. And caffeine. Yes. Yeah. Oh my God, I need so much more than I've already had. All right, so the whole point of these conversations is kind of, kind of follow the path that these teams have taken to this point. And with the Rams, I want to start about a year ago, right? So January 30th, I remember I was at home. I was about to leave for the Super Bowl. I was watching a movie with my then-girlfriend, now fiancé, and the news came down that the Rams had traded for Matthew Stafford. I was like, holy shit. <laughs> like, I guess this makes sense. Like, this all happened very fast. Yeah, imagine what I was thinking. Uh, oh, I can't even. <laughs> I mean, it's from the Jared Goff is our quarterback right now press conference moment to that is a matter of days. Mm-hmm. You know, it really wasn't that long. Take me through 
your reaction to that, what you thought of it in the moment, how you felt it fit into what that team needed at the moment and why it was just part of their DNA as who in just who they are right now. Yeah, it, I kind of knew it was coming. You still didn't really believe it because that Friday night was actually my birthday the night before. <laughs> I was like, oh, I'll put off the glass of wine for the next night. And it stayed on my counter for the next five days. Um, so I was making some calls just because I had, had been hearing some things. And I was like, really? Is that? Are they really going to pivot like this? As all this stuff is happening in Cabo. Yeah, as all yeah, this yeah. is happening in Cabo. And you're, and you're getting like weird, you're, you know, hey, look, do you know who I just saw? Kind of text and yeah. all this stuff. So I start making some calls and I learned that they, the Rams are making calls with teams about Jared and not just gauging, you know, would you be willing to trade in general, but also would you take this guy kind yeah. of a thing. And, and, you know, not to sound mean to Jared, but it just was one of those things where you're like, they're, they're serious. You know, you, 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 because of the contract, it almost was like that, that almost like a subconscious block or a bias in your mind that you're, you're thinking, no, but they can't, right? Because that's but, how you think about but, everything with this but team. But the Rams, now. but yeah, that's the thing. This this team has retrained my brain. Seriously, yeah, it has it, to. It has to. And and then so I'm sitting there. I'm like, oh, they're taking call. And then and then I at the end of the night, I get after the piece is filed and it's out, and um, you know people are like, you know, quoting it and saying, uh, this is not going to happen. This piece is is being manufactured to help manufacture a trade market. And I was like, no, because people they're. They're calling people. And and then the next day, 8.30 p.m. Pacific, um, it happens. And it Brad, Brad Holmes yeah. must still be in Pacific time at that point because he had just joined the Lions for, from the Rams. And you're, you're thinking to yourself, okay, Matthew Stafford, what do I know about Matthew Stafford? And you, you just have these images in your head of um, taking hits and, and playing through stuff. And then also what I thought of initially was the arm angles and the, the, the leverage points and the way that he has uh, – for years and years looked off safeties and done different things um, to maneuver defenses and and especially to do so post-snap. And after covering this team, and you and I have talked about this at length, about what they brought into their house essentially in terms of that defense and understanding that this was going to be the wave, the the post-snap rotations, defenses that can make things really, really muddy on the back end and make quarterbacks process and and pressure in different ways that that Jared just was not handling at that time. And teams had figured out Sean's offense. And I say that bluntly. It had become something that was solvable, especially with the quarterback. The box was too small. Yes. Yeah. Especially with the quarterback. And I know you you and Nate especially have talked about, you know, how this offense has evolved. So with Stafford, this was what they were hoping for. In fact, you know, in October, Sean told me, you know, I knew he was going to be good. Didn't know he was going to be this good. So they needed to go from, you know, a guy whose ceiling they knew and then also felt that he would never again reach that ceiling. But then they needed to pass that ceiling. They needed to get past, um, not necessarily statistically, but in terms of the evolution of the offense. They needed to get past what that entire package of that 2018 season was. They needed to do it in a different way. And to do that, they needed a different quarterback who can do the things that uh, has the variables that, that I mentioned before. And also who has seen a lot of football who can help build this. Totally. And it's you publicly and privately that summer after they made the deal. Sean McVay was a true believer. Like he was a true believer in what this could do for them. And the the terms that he would talk about it in, he would say that plainly, just like, I believe in this. And it was almost an experiment. You know, when you take a quarterback that has been in the league for a decade and he's been in a similar set of circumstances, right? I mean, it ebbs and flows in Detroit, but there is one structure and that's all we knew him in. 
and you drop him into a different set of circumstances, what does it look like? And that's always the eternal question with quarterbacks. How much is them and how much is what is around them? And it was amazing to watch it work out exactly how they wanted it to work out. Like it literally was the plan to a T where you said, we need a quarterback that makes our quarter makes our play caller not have to be right all the time. Mm-hmm. We need a problem solver and flexibility and margin of error, and we need the offense to expand. That box that we talked about needs to be a lot bigger, mm-hmm. and that's exactly what happens. Yeah, and and you know what too, and I love that you said that because it's it it comes down to this with this team. We're gonna probably talk much more about this as this continues, but it comes down to this team almost having um, a fixation on introducing catalysts into their system because they see it force growth. They see it force change. A lot of times, especially with the culture they've built and the core of players that they have on their roster, it has been changed for the positive. So they felt that Matthew Stafford also embodied some of those characteristics. You watch uh, the majority of his games, he seems to embody those uh, characteristics. I kind of have been starting calling him darkly chaotic Matthew Stafford yeah. this year. He is very darkly chaotic. He's very like, it's almost like um, nihilistic at times. You sit there and you're like, Matthew, are you okay? Because he, he likes to be in, he thrives in, I don't know if he likes all it. All trick shots all the time. That's the joke it. that we make. But he likes to, he, he, I don't know, again, I don't know if he likes it, but he, he finds a new part of his brain there. Yeah. And that's, I think, some of the things that the Rams saw, certainly when they're in Cabo, Sean McVay's picking up on that as someone who is very good at connecting with people and figuring out sort of their why and what makes them tick. And, and I do believe that once they figured out, first of all, this is the realistic guy that they can trade for at this time. Um, they did their due diligence on other quarterbacks, but this is the guy who is realistic. And then once you get to know him and start talking to him more, you sort of see that part of his brain that you're like, okay, this actually fits our build. This fits our building. This fits what we do environmentally in this ecosystem. And when put in place in this ecosystem, we believe that this can, he can become a part of this, be a catalyst that pushes this forward. And I want let's talk about just the overall narrative surrounding this all in mentality and the way that they spend their draft capital, because obviously there are high profile examples. You trade two first round picks for Jalen Ramsey. You trade two first round picks for Matthew Stafford. We forget about the Brandon Cooks trade. (laughs) It's it's so far in the past that it's not even a part of this anymore, but that's how they've handled their first round picks. And we know that. But if you look at the way this roster is constructed, three guys that I think have been crucial to this season. And then especially the playoffs have had big moments, guys that are on the other side of this coin. People like Ernest Jones. People like Nick Scott. People like Greg Gaines. There are these these people that just kind (laughs) of cycle in and out that you don't think about enough. Brian Allen's another really good example, Mm -hmm. right? Just these guys who are third, fourth, fifth round picks. Jordan Fuller's hurt now, but he was one of those guys. Cooper Cup. The Cooper Cup. (laughs) The connective tissue of their roster is it plays in combination with these big mm-hmm. swings that they have. And those guys cycle in and out, right? It's a different version of that group every single year, but it's one of the reasons that they've been able to kind of sustain the success. Mm-hmm. It's um, my, my sister's a biologist. And a while ago when I was starting to cover this team and learning about what these were, she kind of gave me some tutoring sessions, right? Because <laughs> in sports for 10 years, you forget everything else in life that you've ever learned. Nothing essentially. else matters. Yeah, nothing else matters. Um, except for, ironically, statistics, um, which I failed in college. <laughs> so <laughs> it all comes full circle. But she talked to me about this term mutualism, where both parties need each other to exist, but uh, they mutually benefit from the yeah. interaction. And this symbiotic relationship. Well, I mean, yeah. close, but yeah. definitely mutual, mutualistic is a, a level above where they collapse without each other. Yeah. This is 
absolutely what this is. This build, so you talk to people in the building and they hate calling it all in. They, they think it's lazy. They think that it's so um, just kind of shallow way to describe what this actually is because of what they've built and the planning that's gone into it and almost um, taking a cutting from that 2017, 2018 build that happened so fast, taking a cutting from that and then replanting it and then hyper fertilizing it, right? And, and turning it into like warp speed of, uh, you know, compounding all of these things of, of what it was. And these guys, their, their moves, their big moves, their high profile moves that everybody is talking about right now, they actually don't work without the undercurrent, like you said, of these other guys who they draft and forced to play, again, catalyst, forced to play at a very young age early on their rookie deal so you can financially make the bigger contracts work, but also so you can um, complement some of the core players on the roster who you use draft capital to bring in. Neither one works without each other. You can't field a team fully of, of you know, you could try. Uh, third, well, they've fourth, tried fifth, with all the dead money that they've endured over the last few years. Sure, but like, this, you know, fully, you know, fourth, fifth, sixth round, seventh round undrafted free agents, um, you know, you're not going to see rosters fully built with that. But the way that they've done it fiscally and then also physically and schematically is they've built layers into their scheme that exist with complementary traits. So that narrows their focus in the scouting department. And they've also like made their scouting process. Give me an example of that. Somebody that really like hones in on that Well, Greg Gaines. I love talking about Greg Gaines. Greg Gaines, (laughs) man. I love it. He's like a wheel of cheese rolling down a hill and you love it. So Greg Gaines, so they're looking for someone. um, they, They let Aaron Donald be creative up front with what they do. Yes. And obviously they play gap and a half. So when you are looking for a guy who can complement uh, what Aaron Donald does, you're not looking for another Aaron Donald. You don't have a first round pick to get Aaron Donald, first of all. You don't have multiple first round picks to find another Aaron Donald because you've traded them away. And so now you have to draft and develop a guy not who is going to be lined up next to Aaron Donald and be even like a version of him. You're going to need a guy who has very specific traits that complement everything that Aaron does and weaknesses that Aaron Donald can hide. So you don't need someone who is a pass rush, like expert savant, miraculous player like Aaron Donald. You don't need someone who is versatile like Aaron Donald. You know that Aaron's going to be creative in whatever scheme they run and and they're going to let him do that. And you need someone who is um, hyper-disciplined and incredibly sort of... um, uh, can, can spatially see where all of the, the gaps in creative spaces go and where they line up. And that's how they found Greg Gaines. They liked that he played really, really disciplined, um, even in out-of-structure situations when he was at Washington. Um, they liked hi- that he sort of has that like um, very s- stout figure, right? The, yeah. the low man wins kind of situation. And they also liked that he had explosiveness. The longer he is playing through a snap, the more explosiveness he's able to gather. Those kinds of things are really important when Aaron Donald is doing what he does all around you and sort of working It's a foundational angles. thing, right? Yeah. It's something you can rely on. It's a rock when Aaron Donald kind of spins around it, which is really important. Yeah, but the, the thing was is Greg Gaines is a fourth round pick and they didn't need him. You, once you're past, you know, middle first round, early second round, guys are flawed, right? And that's just yeah. a fact. And so what they're looking for instead is they're, they're throwing out all of the traits that they know they don't need. And, and this really... Um, Les Snead tried to communicate this earlier, but it really was a partnership when he and Sean found each other um, in terms of that communication of don't want versus specific 
I want this player. I like what he does. Um, that often happens in these, in these rooms between coaches and staff. Instead, it's removing traits, removing things that we don't need because we have this guy and here's how he compliments. And we can play him earlier because the things Aaron Donald does so well, um, we're not asking that guy to do the same thing. We're asking Aaron to do 10 things well. We're asking Greg Gaines to do two things well. And between that, you have a hell of a defensive line. And then, you know, that works in a ripple effect. Everybody else, Jalen Ramsey, same thing. You ask Jalen Ramsey to do so many things well, and other guys only have to do one or two things well. You're only looking for one or two, you know, corners who can tackle this year up for debate, right? But, you know, <laughs> it's you're a like, small group. You're, it's, it's, it's yeah, you're, you're looking for, for a lot of different things because, again, they're being creative with Jalen Ramsey. They're doing different things in that regard. So you're, you're picking fourth, fifth, sixth round corners or undrafted free agents. You're only asking him to be able to do one or two things well while Jalen does, you know, 15, 16 things well. And in that way, they've sort of overhauled not just the way that they build, but how they support the build um, with that undercurrent of players um, selected in that way by like maximizing how they are efficient in their selection and, and removing um, not just biases. I've written a lot about this year, how they remove biases from their scouting process, but also removing traits that they know are extra. And so in that way, everything becomes very efficient. It's, it's funny because the great gains part of this it becomes even more essential because of like an injury to Sebastian Joseph Day and just all of those things and how it all fits together. I mean, just the way that it's worked for them is remarkable. So on defense specifically, you know, obviously we spilled so much ink and wasted, not wasted, but used up a ton of oxygen talking about what their defense was last year mm-hmm. and how important it was even to trading for Matthew Stafford. That yeah. maybe doesn't even happen if the Brandon Staley kind of thing doesn't take hold in the yeah, league. Yeah, if you don't have a real tough wake-up call in training camp. It's so funny that like, <laughs> It's Sean McVay is defensive coordinator for Sean McVay to get a different quarterback. It's like a real thing, which is crazy. But so Raheem Morris takes over. And if you look at the scheme, I think there were so many questions coming into the year of, well, would it, would it be different? How would it be different? And it's not really. You know, it's, it's almost more, not conservative, but they're blitzing less on third down than they did before. They're playing pretty much the same amount of, like, man and zone coverage. They've really taken that model and that, overall idea set of ideas that they had last year and tried to replicate it and it's worked Mm -hmm. and I I didn't know what it would look like but they've really just kind of kept a hand on the wheel on that side of the ball and it's been really important yeah and I think an important part of that was they knew what Brandon's like two three year plan was and Sean got so interesting say more about that yeah well I mean when you're in a building you're and you're looking for a job and you're trying to figure out how your personnel is going to develop two, three years on the road. Brandon's not in the building coaching like he's going to just leave after yeah. a year. He's coaching for the long term. That's just who he is. You know that. Yeah. And, and you know, so you're describing not just what the defense is, but how where it, has the evo- to go. where it has to go, how the evolution is. Because again, these are two guys with Brandon and Shauna and also Raheem too. These are guys who have seen league cycles and who are obsessive about the way things evolve and change. Sean McVay is I think became newly even obsessed with it um, after the last time the Rams were in the Super Bowl because he understood in a really brutal way what happens when you don't <laughs> change fast enough. And so that's what he was attracted to in bringing Brandon and not just the, the defensive system that he so coveted and like was like frothing at the mouth to bring into his building, but also, you know, where it could go, what happens next. That's the, the sort of um, two sides of the brain that I think he has grown in as a coach in, in terms of what that is and how that is necess- necessary to like sustaining a career in this league at this point. So, you know, you're looking at what Jalen Ramsey, Ramsey does. It's a really good example because they dabbled a little bit with, with Jalen at the star, particularly late in the year, last year, mm-hmm. depending on the matchup. 
But they evolved that position even further under Raheem Morris, in part because Raheem is such a great defensive backs coach. He has a great background. He understands what the old versions of the nickel player are from his experience in Tampa. Ronnie Barber. I mean, yeah. it's crazy. Yeah. yeah. But he also knows and sees, especially with Jalen and his personality, like where this can go. Mm-hmm. And you're you're looking at that and you're like, okay, that's new-ish, but it also is an evolution of, it's carrying it forward of, of what it was supposed to be because these conversations are happening across the room all throughout the way that they were because they retain guys like Jonathan Cooley and Ejiro Evero. Um, congrats to Jiro, by the way. That's going to be fun to watch. Is that, is that done? Uh, Denver Broncos. Oh, yeah, that's awesome. Be, I yeah. mean, the least surprising thing in the world, right? I know. I mean, it's it's, it's going to be... The uh, fact that the best man in his wedding... I know. I was like, if it coach. didn't work out, I'd be concerned about their relationship. Yeah. It's one of those things that in, in a different situation, I think you'd be more skeptical about it, but he's absolutely deserving of that sure, job. Like, you don't... So a lot of times you don't like to see guys hire their friends because you're like, oh, Grady hired his friend. In this case, it kicks ass. He right? deserves, he deserves yeah, that it, gig. it kicks so much ass. I want to talk about the coaching staff a little bit because some – we've talked about it all the time, right? Like the friends of Sean McVay is a great way to get hired, and that's true. Like you look at all the guys that have left. Shane Waldron left this offseason. They lost not only – Brandon Saley last year, but Aubrey Pleasant goes to Detroit. He's now a candidate for defensive coordinator jobs. Not surprising at all. Right. So even little things like moving on from Eric Cromer last season and bringing in Kevin Carberry as their offensive line coach, this stuff has mattered. Like the way their offensive line has played this year, the pass protection side of this, when you're playing an empty and averaging like 9.3 air yards per attempt, the chips are nice, yeah. but you need to hold up. That offensive line has played great. The way that their secondary has continued to play, even with all the changeover in the coaching staff. The fact that Shane Waldron was Sean's right-hand man for years, right? And now Kevin O'Connell comes in, and now he's going to be gone. How do they endure that attrition on the staff and kind of maintain Mm -hmm. the same sort of environment as they lose all of those guys? Yeah, it's one of the first things I learned coming into the building and talking with different executives and people who okay these hires, right, is – the same statement made over and over. Sean McVay is really good at finding talented coaches. He really is. And like, I mean, it's kind of clear. Like you see, I mean, I will say too, and I think it is very fair to criticize him on the offensive side. He needs to, I think, diversify his hiring efforts, particularly on the offensive side. And he has a responsibility to do that. I agree. Because these guys are getting promotions. They're getting attention. Um, that Owners want the system. And they want these guys who are in the room planning these games. And so he has a huge responsibility that I do think he is becoming more aware of. It's not an excuse that it's too late or it's been late in the process, but I do think he has become more aware, maybe more self-aware is a good word uh, to use there too, of how important it is when you have, you know, that sort of power that he's realized now that he has people want his offensive coaches, um, what that means and what you need to do in order to not only find and make sure you're hiring the best people um, and casting a wider net than, again, just your friends and just the guys you worked with in, in other places, but also finding the best person for the job. So first and foremost, I wanted to say that. But then, it's, it's, it's really important because when you yeah. look at that, I, we talk about it in these kind of casual terms and natural terms where it's like, oh, they want the Shanahan offense or they want the McVay offense. And then you think about what the group of coaches that are part of that offense looks like mm-hmm. and how that's part of the problem. And I think mm-hmm. taking a step back and reevaluating the way that we have that conversation is, is important. Yeah. And he, um, he addressed, I asked him about it last week um, in one of his press conferences and, and you could, you, you see it on his face, you know, 
that realization, again, it is, it is not happening fast enough, in my opinion, in terms of him affecting change in that way. Um, but he is going to do it on his own time or he's not going to do it at all. That is his decision that he is going to have to make and reckon with. Um, so in terms of, of you know, how he has f- found talent, I think Kevin Carberry is a good example because when he comes in. He's offensive line coach, by yeah, the way. Yeah, excuse me. Yeah, offensive line that. coach. I should have been better about that. And he's that. kind of a psychopath in a good way. Like, oh, he's a, he's an interesting guy. Yeah, yeah. Like he, he like pounds, uh, like, what is it, Nas? Nas, and it, and he'll like, he'll he'll chug a can behind the shed, like, before practice, and then come out and do gas. I'm like, bro. That concerns me. Like, yeah, are you? Yeah. Okay? With all of these people on yeah. this team, I'm like, are you okay, though? That's kind of where I'm, where I'm at with this team. Uh. But, so... He you, he comes from Stanford, and you think like they work together in Washington. They so that's did. where their connection. That's was. where their connection yeah. is. But he's most recently been in Stanford, yep. and so you think, oh, you know, Stanford, like yeah, you know, offensive line and their you know gap power and you know all this stuff, and you think, okay, well, how does that really line up? And you've seen Sean's offensive line plan and his run game shift, obviously, mm-hmm. and, and gotten more versatile, I think, and more nuanced. Um, but at the same time, it, it seemed like a weird. You're like, did you you know did you hire, you hire him because you both work for Bill Callahan? Like what? What's the? It the, made sense to me in the moment because as they were trying to diversify the amount of runs they were using, I could understand wanting someone that has a more varied background in running more gap schemes, running just because it's a natural evolution. But what as, I was gonna, but what I was gonna say is that I think they wanted the fact that he's looking at a lot of things that are happening in college right now. Sure. Yep. And and so when you talk about varying your run game, like it, that is a big part of it. You want someone who not just what he's running, but what he's countering, you know, watching on film from other guys, what he's seeing in terms of uh, some of the trickle up concepts that are happening, I think at a faster rate than ever before. Um, and that, and that's why I think, you know, Sean, I, it kind of seems like Sean McVay is like, all right, Liam Cohen, go spend a year in college, learn a lot and then come on back. You know, it kind of <laughs> feels like that's the way these things are trending because I think he's, he's trying to use the hires that he makes back to my original point. Like, I think he's using the hires that he makes to not just um, bring in guys who he thinks can develop. And that's such a huge part of the balance of their ecosystem, but also guys who he can pull information from guys who have an experience with what's next and and what might be next. And if it's not next, fine, you still kind of file it away. And I think that's where some of his obsessiveness comes in with the hiring process and how um, involved and invested in. And really, I think he gets a kick out of it every year because he knows he's losing guys. So I think he, he really is almost um, like it's an interesting sort of investment that he makes, not just in, yeah, I think you could come coach and I know you kind of and all this stuff. I think it's more like, what can I pull from you and use it to sort of fiddle with some things that I've got going on here? So let's talk about just the path of this season, because obviously at the beginning, it's like, Holy shit! <laughs> like we watch the offense, and it just feels like we—I've seen God. Like this is it. And then it, it wasn't that way all the way through. You know, there are moments in this season where I felt like all hope was kind of lost. Mm-hmm. What would you say was the low point where it seemed like where we're sitting right now was probably a year away? Probably wasn't going to happen. Yeah, I want to honestly. It was that stretch in November. I wouldn't pinpoint it maybe to like one game. There were, you know. There were times when they the were, Monday night loss was like it the, felt the 49ers yeah. one that was really bad but I think part of it was like you don't almost isolate that because you know that every time it's a divisional game you're like you're NFC West yeah. like come on but I think it was that span that three game stretch where they looked totally lost Matthew Stafford was turning the ball over he was like super darkly chaotic Matthew Stafford <laughs> um, and, and their defense was in a, in a tough spot for a lot of that and then also then they were kind of getting punished by teams who 
kind of took what Tennessee did, and you know, in terms of the early turnovers and then going ball control on the other side, those teams could at that time were able and ready to punish the Rams for turning the ball over in that way. And that's when you started hearing about how they were soft and how they had a lack of of resilience and, and all of this stuff. And at the same time, internally, they've just added Von Miller and they're onboarding him into their system. They've just added Odell Beckham. They're onboarding him in their system. They've just lost Sebastian Joseph Day, one of their best, if not their best, run defender. He we has always, my heart. I know we always exclude Aaron from this list because he's just the best at everything. Yeah, but yeah, like, yeah. So non-Aaron players, <laughs> Sebastian Joseph Day is like non-Aaron category, right? And so You're on the world. World's foremost Sebastian Joseph Day podcast. Yes. So we're, we're yeah, good. I know, yeah. and I love it. It's like Sebastian Joseph Day and Greg Gaines. That's that's I'm into it. And so, um, and then they lose Robert Woods, yeah. and Robert Woods is the heartbeat, or one of the heartbeats of this team, and he unlocks so many layers of what they do in their offense, not just in the pass game, but also in the run game and in some of the things that they sell, some of the concepts that they layer um, in the passing game and in the run game. And it, it's it was so, and he's such a good person, and you just felt for him and and like Cooper Cups at the podium and he's fighting back tears talking about his best friend and you think to yourself there's so many crazy happy things happening in this moment Von Miller Odell Beckham and then the bottom has dropped out in many other ways and so I think writing themselves from that dizzying experience emotionally. How did that happen? What do you um, think was the most important part of that process? Well, they, they honestly, they went real fundamental. Uh, they, they tightened everything up on their offensive line. They went heavy personnel and they ran the ball behind Sony Michelle. Yeah. Um, this is not, you know, you thought they'd come out of the bye week, um, better than they did and they didn't against Green Bay and it wasn't until the following week when December begins and they revamp their run game because they didn't really have a run game behind Daryl Henderson it was it was it was very it was poor. volatile right it was well, like it, it, it was just it was poor it was not explosive um, he was falling backwards when he was getting hit instead of falling forwards and they just they weren't getting any sort of any sort of leverage or any sort of push, he was sort of hesitant in finding space to run. And, you know, the offensive line was getting criticized at that time for not being physical enough. And a lot of things were happening. Um, and and they, so they lacked that depth and they were turning the ball over. So between those two things, they lacked a lot of cohesiveness. And then Sean McVay started going heavier personnel sets and then running the ball behind a heavier sort of personnel adjacent back in Sony Michelle. And they... It's, more, it's steadier, I guess yeah, is how I would describe it. They reintroduced it. a heartbeat. They yeah. lost one in Robert Woods and they had to figure out how to reintroduce another one and that is how they did it and that was they obviously didn't use that methodology every game they used it a couple times that game was an establishment of we're getting our rhythm back our heartbeat that we're looking around sort of fumbling around trying to no pun intended trying to find it um, this is how we get it back this is how we find ourselves again and sort of clear the fog and then they went on this run in, in in December and they started putting it together guys who are new started finding their way in the in the defense um, and and on the offense you know Odell Beckham is like what seven touchdowns in nine games and and you're sitting there and you're like okay they're starting to figure this out they're starting to find themselves and then they're buoyed by the fact that Cam Akers is about to return and they see it and he's at, he's back working on the side during practice and they're like holy shit this guy <laughs> is tore it's his Achilles six months ago and that's a pl- I'm going to plug my story over at the athletic you absolutely it, should read it behind, yeah behind the scenes of that uh surgery and the recovery it, it's it's insane and yeah. and like because there was so much going on that's the only reason why he's not getting more phone calls about like how the hell did you do this 
but you know you're starting to see these these glimmers and these flashes and and then Odell Beckham and, and Von Miller they become emotional leaders not just additions they buy into what's happening around them and they start balancing things out in certain ways um, young players really really took a shine to Odell and he took them under his arm um, you know Von Miller has is very very vocal but also very very positive and very energetic it also and feels like he so. can talk to Aaron in a way no one else would be he able can. to right he yeah. can because he's been there yeah. Aaron Donald has accomplished everything except winning a Super Bowl Von Miller Miller, obviously, his experience, Super Bowl MVP in 15. And he also has a way where he he can communicate very specifically that lifts you. And they've got a lot of guys who are great leaders, great communicators um, on that defense, but not someone who connects the thread all together. And, you know, Jordan Fuller is sometimes that guy. Sometimes it's Jalen. Sometimes it's, some you know, Ernest Jones even as a rookie. But someone who is always that guy. Someone who is always like, hey, I'm going to be in your face and talking you up if you hang your head a little bit down. I'm going to tell you what it feels like to hold the Lombardi trophy in your hands and cradle it. Like, I'm going to tell you how your life changes if you make it to sort of like past that final layer, if you meet the final boss, essentially, yeah. right? And like, it's, it's just um, that has buoyed them in so many ways. And I think on the other side, Odell lending kind of like an like a, a positive like edge like um i'm gonna pull down this pass in front of your face you know and, and cooper cup like you don't really think of, like he's you start seeing it coming out of of him like that third down conversion where he actually celebrates after the third down <laughs> conversion for perhaps the first time in his life you see those edges starting to be found and i think it it buoys everybody and i think that's where they started to find themselves was was when they, they had all sorts of change. And again, that's a risky thing to do. It goes back to the Rams themselves. Such a risky thing to do in a season like that to add not just one catalyst, but two catalysts at this, almost the same Monster time. Monster personalities. Just I mean, like, huge, yeah. There's a level of uncertainty when you introduce that sort of factor into your mm-hmm. locker room. and it's But they're not afraid of that. No, they and aren't. I, they, I think they it's they a huge it. Sean thing. I mean, obviously, like, yeah. just because he's such a him being at the center of everything is such a huge part of what dictates this. Same as any offensive coach or any head coach that has like that sort of aura about him, right? Like the saints are like that. When Sean Payton was like that, they were unafraid to add anyone because they were so comfortable in how rock solid everything was there. I want So we're talking about things that are different with this team. Obviously the Matthew Stafford part of this Cooper cup was a very good player for several years. Mm-hmm. Cooper cup was not a, the best, most valuable non-quarterback <laughs> oh, in the oh, league. Oh, you didn't see the triple crown coming? Like, the rest, like, it, oh my God, right? So, like, <laughs> I want, what is the most important aspect of how that step happened, I guess, mm-hmm. is how I would frame it. Yeah, being healthy, first of all, yep. I think was really important, and, and sustaining health uh, after a pretty gnarly knee situation uh, last year, um, sustaining that into the, the health into the offseason, and then um, moving forward into the into the training period. I think part of it too was the deep uh, the deep not autonomy, but like the the creativity and, and the empowerment that he also had in evolving this offense. It's him, Sean McVay, Matthew Stafford, Robert Woods before Robert got hurt. It's those four, Kevin O'Connell, Thomas Brown, like the, the brain trust, like they are moving this forward. And it's, it's not often you see players collaborating in an evolution in that regard, schematically, design, bouncing ideas off of each other. Cooper Cup has his own office at the Rams facilities. Like they are in this. That's to- really funny. They're in this together, like as a group. They have pushed this thing forward. But also Cooper on his own in the offseason, he like built a lab essentially in Oregon and he started blending 
sort of the scientific approach with the physical approach that he knows and training a little bit differently, studying leverages a little bit differently, um, studying how bodies fall, how bodies move, um, how bodies in motion react to other bodies in motion, what kinds of ripple effects those types of things have, and then applying it directly to what he's doing on the field and, you know, marking every data point. And he very much, he became sort of, uh, Again, are these guys okay? Concerningly obsessed. Um, If he hadn't found football, I would be worried about the guy. But, um, you know, this matches again. It matches that level of obsession that I think permeates through that building. Sean McVay certainly wears it out on his sleeve, but but Les Snead as well and Kevin Demoff and all these people who are in their scouting and then their analytics department who are obsessed with finding these small leverages and these small margins, the plus 0.25s that build and build and build. And I think the culmination of that between that, his work that he did and that obsessiveness, and then also, you know, the health was a factor, but then also empower, being empowered and helping to build this offense with a couple of players, not just with coaches, not just being told, Hey, we're going to do this. Can you run this? But having that, you hear all the time about the creativity these guys have, like Robert and Cooper specifically have when they're running their routes. You hear about they, they're basically, they can get open however they want, essentially. Think once, about all those option routes on third they, down yeah. in the NFC Champs game, all of them. Once, once they are at that status, that level, because you, you know, you're not seeing some of the younger guys do that, but those two specifically, once you're at that level uh, of involvement and investment and, and you can have that creativity, well, the, the coaching staff and, and Sean and, and Matthew are like, well, how can we use that creativity and how you see things and continue to build it as we push this thing forward so i think between all of those factors and especially the empowerment of building something in that regard that has made such a difference in going from a yeah terrible you know thousand yard receiver oh no you know but but then also moving from an a plus to like an a plus 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 the last thing i'll ask you here because we talked about a lot of like the unsung guys that think have been important Mm -hmm. in this what do you think this would mean for sean McVay to win this game I think he exhales and unclenches, man. Like, <laughs> I mean, I, I really, like, it's been fascinating studying him over the last two years. I did not cover their last Super Bowl run. I mean, te- actually, ironically, I was technically there watching it as an outside media cover, like how all these people do, like everyone does every year, but watching it from outside the fishbowl, right? Watching from inside how it is... Um, how deeply the self-scout went um, and and trying to find ways not just to build argument into his system, but also rest into his system where he was maybe joining the league, joining the head coaching circles at an all-out sprint before. It's still an all-out sprint, but he takes water breaks sometimes now. (laughs) And and so I think those those things are, are a huge factor in sort of how he's sort of started to find himself a little bit more. I think also finding new things. I think that is part of where his obsession with that comes from. Um, I think it comes full circle for him with knowing what it feels like to not have the answer. And I think that not only drove uh, who he's grown into as a head coach, I still nitpick him for the fourth down stuff. I still nitpick him for some of the decisions he makes. And obviously, you know, there is criticism to be had for some of the hiring, but also 
some of the ways that he's forced himself to find answers and brought in people who can teach him instead of having to be the guy or feeling like he has to be the guy who can rattle off all the answers at once. Um, there, there's a, a common question I've been asking guys through this last final postseason push is what is it like to argue with Sean McVay? Yeah. And it's, it's funny that, you know, their faces all light up. This dude gets some, when he's mad, you know it. Um, when he's, com- it's because he's competitive. Um, he's out there trying to throw the football in the donut rings next to Aaron Donald, <laughs> like betting, you know, and, and there's big, big time bets on the line for all of that. And like, it's, it's, it's funny to see how competitive he gets, but it's always now, I think with a purpose, it's not just to be right. It's to find why you're right. And I think that changes slowly. Um, when you force it to try to be very, very quickly, like I think they were back in 17, 18. And when you all of a sudden realize you don't have the answers and you can't find them immediately, I think that is a unlearning and relearning process that you have to do, not just about, where you're at schematically and, and as a system and as an ecosystem, but also as a person. And I think that part of the process he has embraced, and that's kind of how I see him being different. And I think being a lot more settled within himself as he heads into this, knowing that there are probably answers he won't have, but understanding that now he's better equipped to try to solve them in real time. I love that a man in his mid-30s can grow and change and better himself. <laughs> I know. It's, 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 I providing like, a roadmap for all of us It gives me here. hope for the guys out there, I, right? I, <laughs> I feel much better about what the next three years of my life might look like. Jordan, I, you cover this team like nobody else. I really, really, really appreciate you taking the time to do this. It's so good to chat with you. It's so good to chat with you in person. And we'll see you the rest of the week. Thanks so much, Robert. All right, guys. That's all we have for today. Thank you so much to Paul. Thank you so much to Jordan for taking the time out to chat with me. Please go check out all of the work that they're doing. Jordan mentioned her piece about Cam Akers. You should go check out that. She wrote a deep feature about Cooper Cup and just everything that he did this offseason. You should go read Paul's story about the Bengals scouting staff and just the way that they're set up. Again, just knowledge about these teams and every aspect of them that you cannot get anywhere else. Theathletic.com slash football show if you're not subscribed. If you can also do me a favor, go rate and review the podcast on your podcast platform of choice. That would mean a lot to me. We will be back tomorrow, Friday. It's preview time, baby. We're here. We're two days before the game. Nate and I are going to dig into every aspect of the Super Bowl. We're also going to talk with Sheil about picks, some prop bets. So please come back and check that out. Sincerely appreciate it. For now, we'll talk to you guys later. This was The Athletic Football Show.